You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. If you're wondering the how for everything that we're going to talk about, what we just saying, saying there is the how. Right? That when we look upon the cross where Jesus died and we remembered what he did for us, that's the motivation, that's the power, for the things that we're going to be called to in this passage, that's how they get done. And so um, I'm excited to open God's word with you this morning. We are looking at instructions to the church from Philippians 2.19 through 3.11. So I would encourage you to go there because we're going to be there the whole time. Let's start with praying. Lord God, we come before you today and we say thank you. God, I truly and genuinely pray that we would be marked as Christians, as people who are thankful people in a world full of bitterness and selfish ambition, God, and despair, that we would be thankful people and through that the people would see the hope god we come and as many will do around their tables we say thank you god thank you for your provision lord for us we are truly grateful for that but god i pray that on the the front of our minds god more than the physical things that you gave us that are going to fade away that will be burned with fire lord i pray that we would be thankful for the things that last for the things that are eternal I pray that we would be thankful for you, God, in opening our eyes, Lord, that we would that we see the truth of who you are, that you called us to your, yourself, God, and offered us salvation, the opportunity to live with you forever. Lord, I pray that we would say thank you for the cross, Lord, that we would say thank you for the resurrection, Lord, that we would say thank you for the chance to live with you now and the chance that one day we will spend eternity with you, God. We say thank you for those things. We know that you are the Father who gives good gifts, Lord, and we've experienced that. And we know that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And so for that, above everything else, we say thank you. Pray that you would help us today, God, to be both encouraged and challenged by your word. I pray that there would always be a mix of that, that we would be spurred on and encouraged but there also be things that we would be convicted of or reminded of by your spirit as you continue to uh, want to see us grow, knowing it's for what's best for us. Thank you that you're a loving God who does that. You cares enough about us. God, we thank you in your name. Amen. All right, so like we've done a few times, uh, we are going to break our passage in half, and we're going to look at the, um, two sections of the passage, and then we'll, I'll show you how it fits together at the end. So in section one, we're going to do the end of chapter 2. So let's read Philippians 2, 19 through 30 together. This is what it says. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. 
I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for all of you um, and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him and I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. We're going to look in this passage and we're going to see four things that are commendable in the church. I want to ask you a question. When you're on a team or on a board or in a business, um, what are some of the ways that the employer uses or the coach uses to convey expectations? I think there's a few different ways that employers, that coaches, um, that boards will do this. Um, But I think one of the ways that wise leaders do this is they commend people, right? They have people that they honor that are examples of the commitment and the conduct that the organization wants to see from everyone, right? Honoring people in many ways, yes, you desire to honor that person, but the residual effect of that is you really demonstrate the expectations and you reinforce the culture that you want to see in your team or board or body. And this is exactly what we see Paul doing here. He has a genuine desire to commend Timothy, to commend Epaphroditus, but by extension, what we see is at least four different things that we as Christians should strive for in the church as members of the body. These are the things that God wants to see. And so let's look at them together. So the first one, we see right at the start of our text to have a genuine interest in others, right? You see that there right in the start. The real low-hanging fruit in having genuine interest for others, I think, if we just go to the bottom level, is that we would know each other's names, right? If we profess as a believers, as the church, to have a genuine interest in one another, right, then we must know each other's names. And so I know that many of you do an excellent job of this, but there's always room to expand, right? And so I know that it's hard, and I know that it's awkward, um, and really outside a lot of our comfort zones, but I would encourage you to find someone you don't know after the service today and to introduce yourself. Get to know their name, someone that you don't know this person's name in this church that you see right here, right? Have a couple-minute conversation with them, right? Just tell them straight up, hey, look, I should have done this a year ago, but it's really good to meet you, right? That is something that I think is the very low-hanging fruit if we profess as Christians to have genuine interest in each other. It's challenging sometimes to do that if you don't even know the person's name. Second thing is to love God above your own selfish interest. We see that there very clearly in the text. Look at verses 20 and 21. Look at what Paul says about Timothy. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. This is a sort of heartbreaking thing for Paul to write, don't you think? I'm not sure that it literally means like no one else, but you know when it feels like there's no one else that's striving after the same thing as you? I think that's kind of what he is conveying, where he's saying, look, this is the only person I've really got that's going to genuinely care for you. Who, there's so many people, even I'm surrounded by Christians, who think about their own interests instead of the interests of Christ, right? And I'll be really honest with you. There's sometimes that I can feel lonely 
in the church. Because sometimes, and sometimes it's the devil, right? Just trying to discourage me. But there's times where I feel like, man, the amount of people that genuinely want to follow after God with everything, it's small. It's small. And that can make you feel lonely. Uh, my wife, Maddie, she is a wonderful example of being concerned with Christ's interests above others. Um, and I think that just stems from her genuine love for the Lord. And one of the ways that's very practical that she demonstrates this is she constantly wants to talk about God. God is constantly on the front of her mind and on the tip of her tongue. And yet throughout our marriage and the many various churches we've been at, um, one thing that consistently comes out sometimes is that people will awkwardly joke about this. And they'll say, oh, here comes Maddie. Here she's going to ask us about her faith. She's going to ask what we're, what we're learning about, right? And my question is, why? Why do we joke about something like that when that is the thing to aspire to? To not worry so much about wasting our time talking about the stuff that doesn't really matter, but instead that we would be constantly thinking about Christ, that we constantly want to talk about the stuff that really does matter. One of the most practical ways I think that we can show our love of God in putting aside our self-interest is to have God on the front of our mind and on the tip of our tongue. Let's look at the third one. I'm to serve faithfully. Look at verse 22. This is what it says. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father, right? Um, Other translations say that he stood the test And basically what that means is that he passed the test, right? He showed himself to be a man of character and worthiness. Now, how do you do that? What does the text say? Look at it. What does it say? It says that we serve faithfully. That's what it means, right? And faithfulness is interesting in the English language because we use it in two different ways, right? You can be faithful in a momentary decision, but faithfulness is demonstrated over time. Right? People who constantly make unfaithful decisions, you then don't characterize them as faithful. Right? You characterize them as unfaithful. Right? And so let me ask you this. Are you riding the coattails, the coattails of past faithfulness? Is there a time in your life where you're like, yeah, I was really on fire for the Lord, or a time that I really served, but now when you examine your life in this moment, are you still faithful? Right? Or are you riding on what was going on before, if I had 30 years of faithfulness to my wife and then decided to have a year where I would go have an affair, would you call me a faithful husband or an unfaithful husband? I hope you'd call me an unfaithful husband, right? And so is there opportunity in that situation, right, which some people have experienced to rebuild that faithfulness? Yes. Praise God for that grace, right? But also in the moment, I would not classify myself as faithful, right? It doesn't matter how many times you built up the faithfulness. It's the unfaithfulness. Let's strive after God together. Remember, this is not in perfection, right? We've got to be careful in this. Remember what Dr. Craig reminded us last week, right? We're all a hot mess, right? We all fail. We all sin. We all struggle. So when we, we are going to strive after God, it's not in perfection, right? I am unfaithful to the Lord every single day to my shame, right? But we need to strive after God. The Lord, strive to be faithful. What's the intent of your heart? Do you care? Does your sin break you? That's the question. Number four, be willing to suffer for the good of others. 
Um, if you go down and look at verse 30, look at this Epaphroditus, because he came close to death for the work of Christ. Right? Are you willing to suffer for the good of the church? And again, we're going to bring the bar low. Uh, what would you be willing to give up for the people in this room? The people that we've just said, we have a genuine interest in, and I see that in many of you, right? You have a genuine interest in these people. What would you give up for them? Would you give up your comfort? What about your preferences? What about your schedule, right? That's, it's, it's, it's good to think about these things. Families, what if we scheduled something that's better for seniors, right? Timing-wise, whatever, maybe it's over naps or something. Are you still showing up, right? Knowing that God's desire for the church, the best thing is that the church would be together, right, of all generations. Are you showing up? Or maybe not. Seniors, flip side, right? What if we schedule something that's better for the families, right? Whether that's in timing, time of day, choice of music, whatever, volume of music, whatever it is, right? Are you still showing up? knowing that you are a valuable part, that God wants you to be there, to have a genuine interest in these people, to invest in their lives? We can't, I think it's quite outrageous to even use the word suffer, right? But are we willing to suffer that little bit in our schedule or in our comfort for these people here in this room? Where, how far are you willing to go? One more question for you. We'll look at this in verse 25. Look at this. Paul says this, but I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier. Do you have people who would write that about you? That is a beautiful, beautiful line. Do you have people that would write that about you, that you are a fellow brother or fellow sister in the kingdom of God and in the work of God? Many of you, you can say yes to this, right? I, I know you. You can say yes to this. Praise God for that. Praise God for that, right? Be encouraged. But for some of you, if you're like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I would encourage you, examine how you're living your life in the church, right? Because if you don't have that, right, then I think it tells you something about how committed you are to the genuine interests of those around you, right? Because the people that we gravitate towards are the people that spur us on in our faith, that show a genuine interest in others above ourselves, right? Do we have that bond? You're not going to have that bond with every single person, right? But do you have that bond with people? Let's look at section two now, and I'll show you how these connect at the end. Um, Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Let's read it together. Finally, my brothers, rejoice. In the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever I had gained, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We're going to look at four things to help you guard against false teachers. If you look in the text there, what do you see? You see he, he writes that uh, to write to you again is no trouble for me, and this is a safeguard for you. So he's telling us, this is what I'm going to write. This is why I'm going to do this. It's a safeguard for you. And then he goes on and he says, watch out, and he gives this warning so we know what he's talking about here, right? And just like we've done before when we look at false teachers, right, we're also going to simultaneously examine ourselves, right? Because not many people set out to be false teachers, right? You don't get there in grade one and they're like, what are you going to be when you grow up? And you're like, draw the picture. Like, I'm going to be a false teacher, right? Like that's, that's not the goal. That's not what the kids grow up desiring to do. And yet in many different ways, right? Through the truth, right? Through our understanding of God's word, we get off the path by sin, we get pulled away. Right? And so we want to examine our own lives because there's a lot that when we get warned about these people that we can first make sure that we don't see in ourselves and keep ourselves, guard ourselves against those things. Right? So he tells the church, we see, what does he tell us here? Beware of dogs, evil workers, and false circumcision. We could spend a lot more time on the history of these people, but I won't. Um, Paul is referring to one group using all that language, and it's the Judaizers. And the Judaizers, what they were basically doing is they would preach that circumcision was necessary for salvation. So they were saying gospel plus circumcision was necessary for salvation. If you remember from the Old Testament, what was the reason for circumcision? Circumcision was the symbol of a need for a new heart. That's why the people were circumcised so that they would remember that they were in need of a new heart. And what Paul is preaching against here is that you no longer need the symbol. You don't need to add this to the gospel because that was a symbol pointing you towards your need for God, pointing you towards your need for the Messiah. But guess what? He's here. Jesus came, right? Now he's come. What do you need? You don't need the symbol anymore. You need Jesus to actually cleanse your heart from sin. That's what Paul is arguing So we're going to look at four things to help guard against false teachers. Number one is have joy in the Lord. Number two is um, action minus Christ is fatal. Three, we're going to look at seven deadly confidences and how to avoid them. And then number four is do the math, your eternal spreadsheet. I know some of you in here love spreadsheets. And so we'll look forward to that last section together. Don't worry, I'll have these up as we go as well, if you're taking notes. Number one, have joy in the Lord. Let me ask you a question. I'm asking a lot of questions today. Hope you're listening. It's a serious question. Are you in spiritual danger right now? Are you in spiritual danger? Follow-up question. If you were, how would you know? How would you know if you were in spiritual danger? Right? There's things that our bodies do when we're in physical danger, right? They 
muscles tense and your senses heighten and adrenaline starts rushing through your veins, right? But what about spiritually? How can you tell if you are in spiritual danger? Let's take a look at our text and look at verse 1. Verse 1, we see a couple of things there. We're called to rejoice in the Lord. And then we see that it is safe, or in some translation, a safeguard for you. And so we see in that part, again, that Paul's going to write these things and say, this is a safeguard for you. But it's interesting that he starts this thing saying, I'm going to write the safeguard by telling them to rejoice in the Lord. And so I think that sort of, that safeguard thing is doing double duty. I think the rejoice can connect to that, and then it's also going to demonstrate these are the things after that I want you to do that are going to give you a safeguard, right? So first, let's look at this to have joy in the Lord. So um, let's talk a little bit about mining. I am by no means an expert on mining, but I do know a couple things, right? And the first one is this, that gas in a mine is bad. Do we agree? Right, right? If you have carbon monoxide, bad, right? It can kill you silently. If you have methane build up in your mind, bad, right? It will explode, right? You don't want gas in a mine. And so because you are all well-read people, um, you will remember what they did um, back in the day. They had a very low-tech solution to this gas problem in their mines. What did they do? They bring canaries down into the mine, right? And why do they bring canaries? Right? Because they're very sensitive to the air quality, right? And so as long as those canaries were singing, right, everything was good. Keep mining, when the canaries started to get a little bit wobbly, right, it was time to abandon ship and get out of there, right, because something bad was about to go down. The canaries were warning them about the danger. And joy is like our spiritual canary. It's like an early warning system in our spiritual life. Lacking joy is a dangerous place to be as a Christian. Let me say that one more time. Lacking joy is a dangerous place to be as a Christian. Let's define joy quickly, right? Notice that our verse says joy in the Lord, right? So joy is not rooted in our circumstances, right? Joy is rooted in the Lord, right? And so the Lord, we know, what do we know about the Lord? The Lord is unchanging, right? So our joy isn't rooted in the stuff going on around us, but instead it's rooted in the Lord, Right? It's that contentment, that peace. When we say joy, I don't mean happiness. Right? I don't mean giggly bubbly all the time. Right? That'd be a little bit over the top. Right? What we mean is that that contentment. Right? That's um, what we are seeing in joy. That um, rootedness in that. That's what we see. It's not dependent on circumstances. Second thing: Where do we get joy? Have you thought, thought about this before? Where do you actually get joy? Can you produce it? In yourself, do you just conjure up some joy when you need some, right? We've talked about Galatians 5.22 a lot, um, not on purpose, but remember what it says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. So where is joy? Joy isn't something we produce in ourselves. It's a product of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you, Notice this. So keep my commandments. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So notice this. Notice the inference of the verse. What's the verse saying? That joy 
is connected to obedience, right? It's conditional to obedience. You don't get joy when you're not living obedient. So when we lose our joy, it's not that the Holy Spirit isn't faithful, right? But rather it's that our sin is quenching that joy. He's not giving it because our heart is no longer delighting in the Lord, right? Instead, we delight in our sin and we won't have joy when that happens. So joy acts like a spiritual barometer, right? If your soul isn't satisfied in Christ, then you won't rejoice, right? And if your soul is satisfied in Christ, you'll rejoice. Does that make sense? So when your soul is satisfied, that's going to cause you to rejoice. You can see that. It's very connected. When you're not satisfied in Christ, you don't rejoice. And this is why this is the spiritual barometer, right? Because if you lose your joy, that means you're no longer, your heart is no longer delighting in the things of the Lord. And this makes you vulnerable to false teaching and a host of other things, right? So there's a couple other things that joy does. This is from Jim Johnson. This is what he says. First, joy keeps you safe as you serve. This was interesting. If you lose your joy, it could be a sign that your work for the Lord is no longer worship. Joy protects you from serving God for the wrong reasons. Joy is essentially our guard against religion, right? The monotonous, just doing things because you got to, right? Joy is guarding us from religion. The second thing he said in the article is that it also protects you from temptation. And I started thinking about that. I said, okay, I think he's right, but why? It protects you from temptation. Hmm. I think it's this. Because you value Christ above everything, right? When, you're, when your heart is satisfied in the Lord, then there's nothing else that can be offered to you that you'd rather have. And that's how joy guards you against temptation. Because what's temptation trying to do? Every temptation is trying to give you something that it knows your heart may not be satisfied in, right? That's how the evil spiritual realm works. They're going to try to give you stuff that you're not satisfied in. But when you're satisfied in the Lord, then the stuff that they're trying to give you looks useless. Right? Does that make sense? And this is how joy is helpful in our lives. So we are to rejoice in the Lord as Christians. Number two, action minus Christ is fatal. If you move down in the text a little bit, you see that word flesh come up a few times, right? Um, although I have um, no reasons for confidence in the flesh, right? We see that. What is the flesh? What's it talking about? Um, the flesh really is any human achievement minus the Holy Spirit and glorying in Christ. Flesh, the flesh, doing things in the flesh is any human achievement minus the Holy Spirit and glorying in Christ. That's um, from John Piper. And that sounds eerily similar to what we've been talking about on the flip side with the fruit, right? We've been talking about the positive side of that, that when you live in genuine fruit in your life, what, right? We see that it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? To the glory of God, right? This is the flip side of that. And so these Judaizers, they were doing a lot of things, right? They didn't walk around with a big t-shirt or a big hat that said, like, I'm a false teacher, right? They were talking about God. Right? They were doing many of the things that God said to do. They looked like really good, really faithful Christians in a lot of ways. But they had a little bit of truth twisted. So they didn't actually know God. They didn't have the spiritual 
substance, right? They didn't actually know Christ. It was action, but it was minus Christ. And we need to guard ourselves against this idea, right? That um, we do these things, but we don't actually have Christ, right? And so let's just give you a couple of them. The first, working for our salvation, right? Or for for God's grace and forgiveness, You say, Mark, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't work for my salvation. I wouldn't work for God's grace and forgiveness. I know to do that. Yes, you're right. We all know the answer on the test. But what about this? How often do you find yourself, as I find myself, falling into the trap of thinking that I got to clean myself up a little bit when I fall, when I fail, because I'm a hot mess, right? Before I come back to God, we get to the point where we start to try to clean our lives up a little bit. That's that. That's working for God's grace. That's working for God's forgiveness, right? We know it, and yet we can find ourselves falling into that trap, right? When we fail, what do we got to do? Run back to God. That's the lie of the enemy. It keeps us further away from the Lord because we can't clean up our own sin, right? Remember the gospel. Can you clean up your own sin? No. Jesus' blood, it covered what? Most things? No. Everything, right? That's why when we fail, we got to run back, right? And we're going to constantly be running, right? Because we all know we're constantly failing, right? So you should constantly be running back to the Lord. And the second one, we've talked about this in previous weeks, so we won't go too far into it, but just remember this. Um, showing up at church is not the way to salvation. When you get to the gates of heaven, God is not going to ask how many years you were at a church. He's going to ask, did I know you? Did you know me, right? He's going to see your heart. Do you have a heart of stone or a heart of flesh, right? A new heart, new life that comes from him, right? We've got to remember that. Guard against that, right? Just like we talked about with praying a prayer to you, same thing, right? You prayed one prayer and then your life never changed? That's not what God's looking for. God's looking at your heart, right? And you see that your heart has been changed by the fruit that you produce in your life. That's how you can have assurance of your salvation. But what do we see in the text here that the true church does? Look at this, is it in verse three? For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the spirit of God, and boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. The true church um, glories in Christ, right? And to glory in Christ, what that basically means is the true Christian gives credit for all that he or she is and gives it to Christ, Saying, look, look, everything that I am, it's because of him, right? It's not because of me. Everything that I have is not because I've built up this great life and I'm super smart and I was super this and super that. No, it's Christ. He gave it to me. That's how we give glory to Christ. We deflect from ourselves and we give it to the Lord. And secondly, we worship Christ, right? In the way that we live our lives in obedience to the Lord. Let's look at the seven deadly confidences. This is coming from that list, right, of things that he says. Um, you think you have this, I got more, right? For sake of time, we won't go through them all, but let's look at just a few of them. These are seven deadly confidences. The first is right rituals, right? We just talked about some of that stuff again, right? Are you counting on infant baptism for your salvation? Please don't. Right? Were you baptized because you thought your parents thought it was a good thing to do, but you don't actually love the Lord? You don't actually have a heart to follow him? Please don't. Right? You prayed a prayer, but your life never changed? Please don't. Right? Those, are not, um, those are deadly confidences to have those things in earthly rituals. 
let's skip down to number three, special accolades. If you remember from the Old Testament people, um, the tribe of Benjamin, he says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Why is that a big deal, right? That was the tribe that remained faithful to Judah when the other 10 tribes split away, right? They were the, they were the faithful ones, right? What about you? What kind of special accolades maybe are you resting on? Have you ever rested on the fact that your parents were good Christians, right? Again, we're not going to walk up to the gates of heaven and be like, wow, your parents were really great. You should tag along, right? That's not how God views things, right? We got to not have our confidence in special accolades, right? Or how long we've been in a church or this list of things we've done if it's apart from the Holy Spirit. Let's skip to number five. Paul talks about the fact that, look, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, right? In modern day, this is what it means. He was the pastor of pastors, right? He's the, the rich and really good um, communicator guy that gets invited to big conferences and writes articles, super smart. He's esteemed and respected, maybe even a little bit famous, right? That's what he had. So Paul says that he was. We don't want to hold to that. That's not what God is looking for, is it? What about zeal, number six? Right? He wasn't just sincere in his religion. He was zealous. He was passionate. Right? Sometimes it's hard enough for Christians to have that juice to be passionate. Right? I mean, he was passionate about something that wasn't even real. Um, many of you know that I worked in camp ministry for a long time. I love camp ministry. I um, mean, we had some really great um, times of worshiping um, down in that old, slightly moldy basement that smelled like, tea, like, smelled like kids coming out of the pool. And uh, there's 50 or 60 of us, and we'd get together, and we would cry our hearts out to God, and there were some fantastic worship times in there. And you look around, and there was so much passion in that room. One of the things that's been really heartbreaking for me over time is to watch the amount of people who I distinctly remember displaying that passion for God, and they've walked away, and they're walking farther and farther and farther away. Your passion will not save you. Your passion will not save you. It's not enough. Is passion good? Yes. Is it enough? Is it for salvation? No, it's not. So God is the ultimate judge. I don't know. But as I see their fruit or the lack of it, it, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to watch those people who used to be so passionate, um, but find out that it is actually, it seems to be false. They never actually were rooted in Christ. And that's very heartbreaking. Let's not fall into that trap thinking because we're passionate that that means our relationship with God is good. And what about the last one? Morally right behavior, right? This is one of the hardest ones for us, right? But Mark, I'm a good person. Yes, you are. You're a wonderful person, but that's not what God is looking for, right? God's looking for that new Hard. He's looking for obedience, right? Paul says, look, I'm squeaky clean. He calls himself blameless, right? He looked like a faithful servant. And yet what did God say he needed? He had to get met on the road, right? And then he sends Ananias to him. This is after. So Paul looked like he was blameless, right? As a Pharisee, as someone who's following God. And what did God say? He said, you're not saved. So he comes and he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? And then he gets Ananias, and he hears the truth of the gospel. Right? He demonstrates that being blameless wasn't good enough. They needed Jesus. They needed Jesus. Right? And so these are all things that the false teachers were putting their confidence in. Right? They're saying, this is why I have an authority to speak. And Paul goes right back at them and says, look, if you got confidence in those things, 
I got more confidence. I can do all those things. But you know what? All these things are worthless before God. Here's the heart of a true believer. And that's where the text flips. And then we see this. Let's read it again. This is what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's the heart of a Christian. There's the heart of someone who values Christ above everything. Here's our last section. Do the math, your eternal spreadsheet. The reason I called it this is because um, we don't always catch this in the Greek because we don't speak Greek. I don't speak Greek. Uh, But um, what he was telling, these people would have clearly known that he was conveying the idea of business. He uses the term profit or gain and it's juxtaposed to loss. Right, And so we're thinking about it like a business transaction. That's what he's showing the people here. And so here's my questions for you. What are you striving to gain in this business we call life? And what are you striving to lose? What are you willing to lose? What's the business goals of your life? Right? What's your business model? So let's start with the gain part. What's the gain? Right? He says, but whatever gain I had, That means that he gained something, right? But what did he gain? He gained things that were um, not eternal. He gained things that were from this earth. He gained things from that confidence of the the list that he gave before, right? So let's, you can add to this list. I'm sure there's more, right? But you would think he would have gained popularity, right? That he would be a popular person for living the way that he lived before he met Jesus. People would have thought very highly of him right? They would feel, he would have felt very good about his faithfulness to God. He's saying, look at me. I'm a very faithful Jew. Look at all the ways that I keep God's laws, keep God's commandments. His conscience was probably at ease in a lot of ways. That's what made him so zealous. He had all those things. He had popularity. He had people thinking kindly of him, thinking he's the greatest. Those are sometimes hard things to throw away, right? Those are things that our flesh often desires, does it not? That people would think this of me, that people would think highly of me that I would be popular. And he says, look, I threw all those away. I counted all those as loss in this transaction because Christ had become everything to him. Right? He counted everything that he had gained as a loss from the book of Matthew. I think it's 1344. It says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. There's the parable. That's the whole thing. Notice both in our passage and in this parable. What happened? What happened? Both men had to lose everything. But what they gained was infinitely greater. Let me ask you another question. Are you willing to give up control? Will you count control as a loss? Control might be one of the hardest things 
that we as Christians have to give up in following God. I would hazard a guess that a good chunk of the sin that's in your life that you are still holding on to, that you haven't counted as loss, haven't given to God, has to do in underlying with control. Think about it for a second. What are you holding on to? Do you want to continue to control that? And are you not willing to give that up to God? Right? Because here's what happens to us, right? We get angry, right? We get angry. And then that normally causes something as that causes something as we run to this thing and we want to control it, right? Something bad goes down in your life. And then when you, when you need comfort, a lot of times that's where your sin comes out, does it not? Right? Because something else has gone badly. And so you run to something else. And ultimately, what are we looking for? We're looking for control. And so that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Right? It's different for every one of us. Right? Some people try to control other stuff. Right? Some people run to sexual sin. Some people run to alcohol. Right? We run to all kinds of different things. But ultimately, it's about control. We, we, we feel like when our life spins out that we've got to control something. Are you willing to give up that control and count it as loss for the sake of Christ? Paul gave up everything. That man in our, um, that Jesus talked about in the parable, he gave up everything. But what they found was infinitely greater. I dare you to try it. Give God everything. And then come back and tell me it's not worth it. Because when I gave God everything, I found that it was worth it. When I look back in the seasons of my life, it is directly correlative that the greatest points in my life are the times where I was willing to give God everything. And the times where things start to go down are the times where I started to try to wrestle back that control. When I ran after God with everything, there was no greater times in my life. That's what I want in my life. Is it hard? Yeah, it is hard. But I think that's what Paul is showing us here. As we see this false teachers, right, false Christians, we don't, we're not willing to give up everything, right? And how does Paul know this to be true? Because those who find the ultimate treasure, those who find Christ, find something infinitely greater than anything else in this world, and it'd be a crazy business decision not to accept the proposal. And this causes them to throw away everything to follow Jesus. Are we still going to fight our flesh? Yeah. Are we going to fail and sin like me every single day? Yeah, we are. But we're going to have a new mindset, a new goal, a new business plan, a new destination that we are running towards, and it's Christ. Consider these verses one more time. Because Paul found this. He could say that because he had found that Christ was worth it above everything. Timothy found this. Epaphroditus found this. And they lived it out together in the church with believers, right? Genuinely caring about each other, putting others in front of themselves, not serving their own selfish interests, right? They served the church faithfully to the point of suffering, to the point of death, because they found what the false teachers never found, that treasuring Christ above everything was worth it. That's what they found. Let's pray together.
God, would this be me? God, would I treasure you above everything? God, there are, I confess there are so many times where I don't, I don't stand up here perfect. But I do stand up here knowing that what I have found in you is infinitely greater than anything else in the world. Would you help me? God, would you tune my heart to constantly run after you and not be so distracted by the things that will fade away and burn? But help me to fix my eyes on that which is eternal, Lord, which is you. Lord, I want to live my life in a way that demonstrates this. God, that I would count everything a loss compared to knowing you, compared to knowing Christ. Lord, that I would be constantly motivated and reminded by the gospel. God, what you did for me is absolutely mind-blowing. Lord, thank you for that. I pray that you would help me in this to count everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I meant what I said, God. When I look back in my life, the times, the times that are the greatest in my life are the times where I did that, where I gave you everything. Lord, help, my, help me to do that more. Help me to live there, God. That's my desire, that you would be glorified in my body, in this life. We pray all these things in the wonderful, matchless, perfect, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. God bless. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.